The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Hi, everybody. I'm Kelly Evans, and we are going to hear from Fed Chair Jay Powell live in just a few minutes. He's speaking at the IMF, being quizzed by our own Sarah Eisen. Markets expecting he'll solidify the case for a half-point hike in May. Five- and seven-year Treasury yields popping above 3% today. Can the 10-year be far behind? What's it all mean for markets, which just went negative, and for mortgage rates? We'll see what the Fed Chair has to say in just a couple moments. Plus, another one bites the dust. A day after Netflix stock plunged on its major streaming changes. Now word is that CNN Plus is shutting down after a month uh, of launch. Shares of parent Warner Brothers Discovery are sinking on that news today. We have the latest and the fallout. And another edition of Earnings Exchange. Today we'll get you ready for looming results from Snap, Amex, and Schlumberger. But first, let's get to Dom Chu with these markets. They were green. Solidly so. Earlier this morning, Kel, you and I were talking about that this morning, and now they're in the red. Not a lot. But considering the strong gains that we saw earlier today, the fact that we are now in red territory, although marginally, maybe signals something about a little bit of the sentiment right now, given the nice short-term bull run that we've seen. The Dow Industrial is up down about 22 points, just about flat on the session, but again, solidly higher at one point today. The S&P 44.39, the last trade there, off about one half of 1%, 20 points there. And the Nasdaq Composite, 13,344, down 109 points. A big reversal there in the Nasdaq trade, down about three quarters of 1%. Also want to highlight right now an interesting theme that's starting to be in the early stages of developing so far in this 2022 year. And that is the kind of difference in performance between large cap stocks, mid cap stocks, and small cap stocks. If you take a look at one of the ETFs that tracks the small cap trade, down about 10% on the year-to-date basis so far. The S&P 500 is down about 7%. Meanwhile, the mid caps in that kind of sweet spot there, down about 6%, 5 to 6% right now. The reason why you're looking at that is in a time of this kind of stress, are the mid caps going to be that sweet spot space again? where small cap investors move up the market cap spectrum to see if they can find a little bit of relative safety and where large cap investors go down the market cap spectrum to see if they can find a little bit of outperformance or alpha. We'll see if that mid cap trade starts to play out a little bit more like that in the coming months. And then the stock of the day, Kelly mentioned it right at the top, a very big week for streaming in terms of competition headlines, in terms of economic headlines, in terms of all kinds of content headlines. Warner Brothers Discovery right now on a one-year basis is down 17%. If you take a look at the trade today, down 8%. Streaming has not had a very good week. With the announcement right now that we are seeing CNN Plus unwind after just a little over a month in existence, it brings you to this notion that from a competitive standpoint, who's going to win, who's going to lose, who's going to outperform in streaming? This is very much a space a lot of people are watching right now because of our changing habits as consumers of media. And I don't just mean this as professionals, Kelly, in the business. We know everybody out there, especially during the pandemic, started streaming a lot more. What's it going to look like in the coming years? Big questions to be answered. I'll send things back over to you, Kel. All right, Dom, thank you very much. We are going to begin there today with the latest chapter in the streaming stumble. Not 48 hours after Netflix stock collapsed on its slowdown in subscribers, Upstart CNN Plus is shutting down, not even a month after launching. Shares of parent company WBD down more than 8% after being down again yesterday. Here to break down the story for us and give us the very latest, we have senior media and tech correspondent Julia Borston, CBC.com tech reporter Alex Sherman, Sarah Fisher, media reporter at Axios and Dan Gallagher from the Wall Street Journal as we wonder which major tech players could come out on top as the streaming space consolidates. But first, let's get the latest, Julia, on the CNN Plus stumble. Well, Kelly, Warner Brothers Discovery announcing it is shutting down CNN Plus. It launched just on March 29th, just a couple of weeks ago. Operations will halt April 30th, and CNN Plus chief Andrew Morse is leaving the company. 
Warner Brothers Discovery saying in a press release, quote, as we become Warner Brothers Discovery, CNN will be strongest as part of WBD's streaming strategy, which envisions news as an important part of a compelling, broader offering, along with sports, entertainment and nonfiction content. The company's new CEO of global streaming, J.B. Perrette, saying that the CNN brand and its content will be key to the company's direct-to-consumer service. So, Kelly, I think what we're seeing here is a new type of bundle that this company is putting together to make sure that it can really compete with the other major streamers. Julia, stay right there. Alex Sherman, let me turn to you. Apparently, a big reason for this sudden uh, about-face is the deal itself. You know, Warner Brothers had one vision for CNN+, Plus, sunk a ton of money into it, and Discovery apparently not on board with that. The deal gets finalized. Why did they pull the plug? You can look at this from two different perspectives, both leading to the same conclusion. One, David Zasloff, the current CEO of Warner Brothers Discovery, already publicly said that he had not seen a, a business plan, more or less, for CNN Plus in terms of its future in order to be profitable. Basically, he said, uh, originally, look, I'm not sure that this thing is a viable product. I'll have to look into it. Obviously, he made the decision it wasn't. I reported last week that fewer than 10,000 people were watching CNN Plus uh, every day in terms of daily active users. So that's a paltry amount of people when you think about, you know, Netflix has 222 million subscribers. The other reason that they shut this down is that CNN Plus's existence is antithetical to the larger strategy here that this company has, which is they want to push this big bundled product, everything we've got basically from the Warner Media catalog and the Discovery catalog. And we're going to use that big package of all of our strongest content to compete against Netflix. If you have this other thing on the side, you're actually enticing people not to subscribe to the bigger bundle. What is the bigger bundle, Alex? So we don't know exactly yet. We're waiting to hear from that. It doesn't exist yet. Well, look, I mean, the merger just happened. So I'm willing to give uh, management a few days on this to tell us <laughs> what's going to be in this. But look, I, I can I can more or less tell you what it's going to be. It's going to be everything on HBO Max. It's going to be everything on Discovery Plus. Uh, it will probably be uh, some of the things on CNN Plus. And then over time, I imagine it will probably be live sports uh, that you see currently on the Turner Network or, uh, or meaning TNT and TBS. And also it very well may be live programming that you see on CNN today. Well, maybe that, Sarah, means they can salvage some of CNN Plus, which I don't know the exact number. They've reportedly sunk a ton of money into this. They hired a ton of people, the talent to the producers, to everything else to support it. Did the timing um, just become an issue because we've really hit the wall here, it seems like, for streaming more broadly? Yes, that's a great point. So let me lay out some of those numbers for you. About $300 million has been invested so far in CNN Plus. The plan, according to my sources, was to put a billion dollars into it over the course of four years, hoping to hit profit after four years. The idea was for CNN executives, if we can create a profitable subscription streaming service, we have another revenue stream outside of our website. And that helps us stay diverse when linear TV eventually dies. Now, what happens to some of that CNN programming? How do we salvage it? Sources tell me that there is interest in putting some of that programming on CNN's current app, which is a free app. Today, you need to sign in with your cable provider to authenticate live programming. The idea here would be offer some of that video, offer some of that streaming from the programming from CNN Plus for free and make it ad supported. That helps them to make more digital ad revenue. Of course, video rates are higher than traditional rates. The other idea, as Alex Sherman mentioned, who's been doing some great reporting on this, is to bundle in some of that programming with the larger HBO Max bundled offering. The idea there will be have one service likely branded around HBO Max because that's been working for consumers at branding. And then that one service for the first uh, foreseeable future will include bundles. So they're not going to sunset Discovery Plus tomorrow. They'll be able to buy it bundled with HBO Max, but probably come around 2023, 2024. That's when you'll begin to see a more bundled offering between all of these services under the brand name HBO Max. HBO Max, okay, under that brand name. All right, so Dan Gallagher, let me turn to you because the broader story here, and we spoke about this with Laura Martin yesterday, but is potentially one of consolidation. Right. So as you think through the different chess pieces, 
Uh, there's rumors and, and speculation about Apple's involvement. Uh, you know, Netflix being less than a hundred billion dollar market cap company could make, could that make it ripe for a takeover by an Apple or by an Amazon? Or how should we read the intentions of big tech here? And what's what's a tough regulatory landscape? Uh, well, I've, I've I've covered this for a long time, and it's not the first time that I've seen Apple's name floated as somebody to buy Netflix because the stock has seen weak points before. Um, I, I see that unlikely in the case of Apple for numerous reasons, uh, but I think this, uh, Netflix's quick meltdown has has come as you know the company has broadcast this message that there might be a ceiling on streaming on the overall streaming market. And I think that's why you're seeing other streamers their market values get hit. And I think it's driving these companies like um, like the new Warner Brothers Discovery to think about, okay, how do we make sure that we're one of the last few people standing? We have to make our offering big um, so it's not something that consumers can cut off. And the strategy of having many different offerings that appeal to more niche audiences, I don't think really works with that. And Julia, again, we turn back to the share price performance where after Netflix yesterday, we saw all of the streaming services struggle. It's not like they were benefiting from their stumbles. This does seem to be a broader point of saturation. What are the likely next steps here? Um, How do you anticipate the chess pieces moving? Well, I think there's going to be an increasing focus on ad-supported streamers. HBO Max does have an ad-supported version. And it is worth noting that this morning AT&T did announce, because those Warner Media numbers were still part of AT&T in the past quarter, that they did see the addition of 3 million new subscribers. So it doesn't mean the Netflix numbers do not indicate that everyone is contracting when it comes to their streaming subscribers. But I think as we hear from more and more of these players, whether it's Disney Plus or NBC Universal's Peacock, the question is, is there still growth? Where's that growth coming from? And how much of the the growth is going to be coming from lower cost ad supported options as consumers really pull back on how many different services they're willing to pay for? Um, And are we going to see the emergence of a couple of key bundles, larger bundles, whether it's Disney Plus, ESPN Plus and Hulu, or this new amalgamation of these Warner Brothers Discovery assets as people just try to pick a couple of different options and try to get as much value as possible out of that? Dan, I guess that's my point is the consumer is overwhelmed now by selection. You have your existing cable subscription in many cases, then you're trying to toggle between different streaming services. Who is going to come in and rebundle all of this? Uh, I think you'll see some consolidation at some point. And honestly, I think I think Netflix will remain um, as, you know, in the years going forward. I think what's going to happen, though, I mean, I see various studies that show that Somewhere between consumers are willing to have right now about three to four uh, streaming subscriptions at a time. So I think clearly we're getting into a place where we're going to see, you know, each consumer is going to have a few services that they stick with and then maybe services that they jump in and out of for for a particular program. Um, So, again, I think everybody's trying to position to not be one of those ones that's going to get that high churn rate. Uh, to be one of the big ones that can kind of remain and be like one of the last few people standing. Yeah, and we most industries mature with you know roughly four major players. We had five names on the screen uh, there just now. Alex, what's your spidey sense telling you? Yeah, I think we very well may be headed towards something that ironically looks more like uh, a bundled TV product that we're used to. I mean, it will right. be better for the consumer because you'll be able to watch it in and out of the house and on any device, but it would not surprise me at all if the next iteration of the streaming wars is Netflix bundles with stars, bundles with whatever for some sort of price, and that's the next reinvigoration of growth, and you see Peacock and Paramount Plus, and you have these kind of mini bundles that don't cost you $100 a month like cable costs you, but maybe cost you $20 or $30. Disney already has their own bundle with, with Disney Plus, Hulu, and ESPN Plus, so that already exists. So we may see some other companies pair up and kind of partner as we kind of slowly move toward a more expensive bundled product. All right, Sarah Fisher, I'll give you the last word. I don't think this should be surprising to anybody. I've been on the phone with Jill Rosengard-Hill, who's the top analyst at Magid, a TV research firm. And every quarter for the past three years, I've said, Jill, how much are people willing to spend on subscription streaming service a month? She tells me around 40 bucks, around 10 bucks a service for four services. 
even throughout the pandemic, Jill, it's not going up. She said, no, there's inflation. There's other consumer discretionary factors here. And to me, that signals, even though there's demand for streaming and more people are leaving television to go to streaming, they're not willing to pay for more. And so all that this consolidation that Alex and Julia and Dan is describing, it was bound to happen because if you look at the consumer's appetite for spending, it really wasn't actually going up even throughout the pandemic streaming boom. So true. And maybe inflation is part of what hastened an end to that. Steve Leesman reported about that last month as well. Guys, thank you all for your time today. We'll leave it there. Not the end of the story. Julia Borson, Alex Sherman, Sarah Fisher, and Dan Gallagher. Now, speaking of inflation, Fed Chair Jerome Powell is set to start speaking at any moment. Wall Street has already priced in another half-point rate hike, and that's a good thing, according to my next guest. He says a more hawkish Fed is better for the economy and even for the markets right now, and that for the first time in a while, investors looking to hedge volatility can look in fixed income and maybe see some near-term gains. Let's welcome in David Katz with Matrix Asset Advisors. David, it's good to see you. So what do you mean? You think fixed income parts of it are looking attractive here? Well, we have not liked bonds for a long time, but in light of the rate moves, you now can buy a six-month, a 12-month, an 18-month treasury and get like 1.75 to 2 and a quarter percent. And if you hold them to maturity, you're going to get a nice positive return. That compares to getting 0.1 in money markets at a lot of the brokerage houses. So you finally can buy those very short-term bonds, get a positive return. Uh, and when you're buying those, you really don't have too much interest rate risk because if you hold them to maturity, you get the yield, plus you get back your money at par. You make an interesting point that, um, you know, I sometimes look at the market and think it's ex you're exactly right. That is it is it responding well to the Fed's hawkishness? You know, the yield curve is steep and we still see commodities and metals and, you know, those parts doing relatively well. Do they need and want uh, and are giving the Fed the space here to be more aggressive? Well, inflation doesn't stop like a light switch. So we think that it's going to take a little bit of time. But in terms of the Fed setting expectations that they're going to be pretty hawkish, the markets have come to adapt it. The stock market seems to be David, able to handle it. Let me. And, I'm uh, sorry. Uh, no, actually, uh, we believe Powell's speaking right now. So if you don't mind, stay right there. Let's listen into the Fed chair. He's at the IMF debate on the economy. It's a bright spot in the global economy. But now policies are changing, as you know, to address inflation. And there are concerns globally about the tightening of monetary policy. What's the U.S. outlook? And, and how are you feeling right now about your claim that, that we're not heading toward recession? I guess I'd start by saying that, that we are unified with our allies around the world in opposition to the, in, uh, the invasion of Ukraine for no reason and the human suffering that's going on there. And while while these economic matters are important. There are, there are very fundamental things at stake there that we, we, we want to keep in mind. Um, so in terms of the U.S. economy, we are a bit more remote from the immediate uh, infect, uh, effects of, of the war uh, compared to Europe, for example. Uh, but we will be feeling them over time, and they will come in the form of upward pressure on inflation, further upward pressure, and a bit of downward pressure on, on output. But the U.S. economy is, is very strong, performing very well. By most forecasts, uh, we'll have another strong growth year this year. The labor market is extraordinarily tight, extremely tight, historically so, and to the point where, uh, where uh, really there's an imbalance between, uh, between supply and demand for workers. And of course, the big, the big issue that we're very focused on is inflation and getting inflation back down to our 2% goal. But if we start to slow materially in our economy, Will you stop tightening, even if inflation is still above your target? Well, so um, first of all, uh, you asked about a, about a soft landing. Uh, you know, basically, that's our goal. Our goal is to is to is to get demand, use our tools to get demand and supply back in sync, so that inflation moves down and do so without a slowdown that amounts to a recession. That's our goal. And I, I don't think you'll hear anyone at the Fed say that that's going to be straightforward or easy. It's going to be very challenging. We're going to do our very best to accomplish that. And it's, it's absolutely essential to restore price stability. Without price stability, really, the economies don't work without price stability. We need that to have a strong labor market for an extended period of time. We need it for financial stability. So we must do that. The market has three 50 basis point hikes coming at the next three meetings as of this morning. Is that reasonable? So I, I, I don't... I try not to comment on specific market pricing for things, but I, I will just say this. Uh, at our last uh, meeting, and this was in the, in the, min, the minutes from the meeting, 
many, many on the committee uh, thought it would be appropriate for there to be one or more 50 basis point hikes. Are you one of those people? I don't disclose my own path. I try to, I try to lead the, the committee. But uh, so I think, um, uh, I think markets are, are processing what we're saying. They're reacting appropriately generally, but I wouldn't want to bless any particular market pricing. The, the thing I want to say, though, is we really are committed to using our tools to get 2% inflation back. And I think if you look at, for example, if you look at the last tightening cycle, which was a two-year string of 25 basis point uh, hikes from 2004 to 2006, inflation was a little over 3%. Uh, so inflation is much higher now, and our policy rate is, is uh, still more accommodative than it was then. So it is appropriate, in my view, to be moving a little more quickly. And I, I, also, I also think there's something in the idea of front-end loading whatever accommodation one thinks is appropriate. So... So that does close point yes. that points there in the direction of, of 50 basis points being on the table. Certainly we make these decisions at the meeting and we'll make a meeting by meeting. But I, I would say that 50 basis points will be on the table for the May meeting. Minister Miliani, are you more worried about what Fed Chair Powell is doing or about what we're seeing in China? We'll right dip now. back in as we get more headlines from Jay Powell, the Fed chair, who is speaking at the IMF's debate on the global economy. Let's turn now for some quick reaction to these headlines that we're watching the market, obviously, which had gone negative prior uh, to Powell's comments on expectations, which I believe we just heard confirmed uh, that a half-point rate hike is on the table. We turn to Steve Leisman for some more thoughts here. David Katz still standing by as well. Steve? You know, I think he's confirmed what I believe the market knew and where it was priced in. I'm looking here. I don't see any change at all in the two-year, and I'm looking here right now at the Fed probabilities, and it's still at 265 uh, which, by the way, is something that happened earlier today. I think more so on Mary Daly's comments, who kind of said, hey, we may be thinking about a 75 basis point hike down the road. That's the new question for the market is just how aggressive the Fed will be. And it's interesting, uh, Kelly, I don't know if you guys have that chart loaded for this uh, conversation of the Fed funds outlook, but uh, trading at 265 now is trading above where the Fed uh, and several Fed officials have said is where they think the uh, the upper end of where they think the funds rate ought to be uh, by the end of this year. They've said two and a quarter, 250. So the market now taking the Fed uh, a step further and saying, OK, you guys are going to be hawkish. Well, let's price in a little more hawkishness out there. And let me just take a look here because we now see. 340 by September 23rd, September 2023 is where that uh, that uh, rate is pegged right now, Kelly. So uh, the market had been aggressively postured and uh, um, Powell really just confirming uh, where it had been and and not really uh, uh, going as far as some other Fed officials have gone in the recent days. David Katz, what do you think it all means for the market? Well, we think the Fed is trying to talk up expectations for these significant rate hikes. And the more they do and the more the bond market reacts, quite possibly six and 12 months down the road, the less the Fed is going to do. So we're very comfortable with the way Powell and the Fed is navigating this. Uh, we think there's a pretty good likelihood that we're going to continue to have growth next year. For sure, the economy is solid over the next nine to 12 months. And we're hopeful that we don't get into a recession. So we think it's a delicate tightrope to be involved with. But we think the Fed is, is quite possibly going to pull it off. And we do think you're going to get some inflation relief by the late summer, early fall. And that's going to take some pressure off of the Fed. And Steve, just to reiterate what you said, which is that they might ultimately bring the Fed funds rate, which is probably around half a percent right now, to 3.4 percent by the third quarter of next year. Come on, Kelly, it's 0.375. Uh, don't don't get there earlier than we have to. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's it's half a point for all intents and purposes. Um, look, the, Powell's talking about this concept, which um, David said much more simply, uh, which is this idea of, of, of talking it up. Powell talks about it front loading. And what they're doing is they're bringing forward as much as they can in terms of restraint to the economy through talking. And I think the idea that David expressed, which is an interesting one, and it's one that people have to figure out in terms of if they're trading this short term, is does the Fed need to get all the way there if it provides enough restraint right now by front end loading? Look at where the two year is. We are existing right now in an economic environment where the two year is really at 270. That's not a future rate. That's where it is right now. So all that restraint, I don't know what you want to call it, 150 basis points of restraint has been brought into the economy right now. And if it does indeed, uh, if David's right and some other forecasters as well, that towards the summer we start to get some relief, 
Fed will probably go to two and a quarter, 250, but may not next year, Kelly, hmm. have to go up well into that 3% range. And that's really the, the thing to watch here. The debate right now at the Fed is not this year. Everybody's at two and a half. The debate right now is about next year. So, David Katz, final word to you then on the tougher question of what do fixed income investors do? What would your advice be? You absolutely want to stay short, but you really can buy nine to 18 month bonds now and lock in a adequate return and it's a lot higher than you're getting in money markets. So we wouldn't buy intermediate term bonds. We wouldn't buy long term bonds. But the you know six to 18 months, we think you're going to get a decent return with very little to no risk. All right. Amazing to look. We had the five and the seven year above three percent earlier today. The 10 year 293 as we watch the stock market selling off a little bit as Powell reiterates that half point hike on the table next month. Uh, Steve, we'll leave it there for now. And David as well. Our thanks to you, Steve Leisman and David Katz. We'll continue thanks to bring you any uh, further comments and headlines from the Fed chair as he continues to speak at that IMF event. Pivoting to the other big story of the day, Earnings on shares of Alaska Air are climbing and on pace for their fifth straight month of gains after reporting revenues above pre-pandemic levels for the first time. So what's the timeline for a fuller return to profitability? How is the summer setting up? Phil Lebeau is here with the CEO of Alaska Airlines, Ben Minicucci. Phil? Thank you, Kelly. Ben, I know you just came off the analyst conference call. Uh, let's not talk about the first quarter. Yes, it was a loss, but it was smaller than expected. I think people are more focused on what you and your competitors are saying about this environment right now and this incredibly strong demand. Have you ever seen something like this in the airline industry where it has just turned around very quickly? It's been extraordinary, Phil, and thanks for having me. Yeah, it's been extraordinary demand. We saw it starting in March. You know, our March sales were the highest in our history. 13% higher than any month in our history, and it's continuing in Q2, double-digit uh, gains in, in unit revenue, double-digit gains in yield, and we're projecting a double-digit uh, pre-tax profit uh, in the second quarter in a profitable year. So, yeah, it's been extraordinary. Ben, every airline executive that I have talked with in the last month says this is different because it's going to last beyond this summer. It's going to last for several quarters, maybe even a couple of years. If you were in that camp as well, how are you convinced? How do you convince investors that this is not going to last just a few quarters and then it's back to business as usual? Well, we're seeing a lot of great signs, Phil. That's a great question. You know, nobody has, you know, a true crystal ball, but it's a great question. What we're seeing right now, again, at least the next six months, it's incredibly strong. And one I think the big factors is we're seeing business demand coming back at a rapid rate that we haven't seen before. We're seeing international travel open up. So those are very encouraging signs, you know. You know, but to balance that, you know, we're a company that has a low cost business model and we try and look around corners. You know, inflation is high. There is risk of recession. Fuel prices are high. So we try and do is no matter what the environment out there, we try and insulate our business as much as we can from these external risks. But right now, everything we're seeing is that, you know, demand is incredibly strong, better than we've ever seen it in our careers. Ben, it's Kelly here. And on that point about fuel prices, are you guys hedged? And what's your philosophy about that? Hey, hi, Kelly. Yes, we are hedged. We're 50% hedged uh, for 2022 at $78 a barrel. And Kelly, that, that's going to give us uh, a $200 million tailwind uh, on our results this year. So it's a, it's a conservative hedging program, it's in, and it's served us well over the years. Too bad you can't hedge labor costs. Yeah, you know what? You're right. You know, when you combine, Kelly, it's a great point. When you combine labor costs and, and fuel costs, that's almost 60% of our cost structure. So uh, you know, inflation is real and, you know, fortunately, demand is strong and we can recover, you know, a lot of that, that, that cost increase. Ben, a couple of stats from your quarter, a surge in first class revenues, as well as people paying up for premium cabin. What is driving that? I mean, it's not enough just to say people are like, I'm flying again. I want to pay up and go in business class. What's driving that, that people are saying, yes, I will pay more now, not just buy a base fare? Great question, Phil. I think the way we see it is people are coming out of the pandemic and I think they want to treat themselves a little bit. And our fares are affordable for our premium product in our first class. You know, our premium product, it's a great product. It's got 36 inches of pitch. You get a free drink, you get a snack. First class, we have industry leading pitch in our first class. So people are enjoying the product once they try it. And uh, I think just coming out of the pandemic, people are giving themselves a little treat. And when they try it, they're saying this is pretty good for the premium I'm paying for, for, for that fare. 
Ben, does the mask mandate and this debate that's going on about whether or not the CDC might reinstitute it at some point, does that matter at all right now? Or do you think the, the market in terms of people flying is, it is what it is. If it's there, I'll put it on. If it's not there, I'll take it off. Well, I think I'm exactly with you. I think that's where people are at. Uh, I mean, our view is that the mask mandate being lifted is a good thing. We're pleased with that. I think we see all the benefits. You know, we talked about the air on board being refreshed every three minutes and and uh, and, you know, HEPA filters that, you know, filter out the particulates, including COVID. I think the extra benefit with the mask being left is really for our flight attendants. You know, our flight attendants now can get back to what they do great, which is provide great caring service. And I think they're excited about that. Ben Minicucci. Ben, thank you very much for joining us today from Alaska's headquarters in Seattle, Washington. Kelly, I'll send it back to you. And let me tell you something, Kelly. Spent the last couple of days in the airports. I'd say it's about 40 to 50 percent of the people still have a mask on. But each day you've noticed a few more people taking their mask off. Similar at the grocery store uh, the last couple of months. Phil and Ben, our thanks to both of you. We really appreciate it. Alaska Air shares up about 1%. Still ahead, Disney is the worst stock on the Dow over the past 12 months. It's down nearly 40% from its all-time highs last spring. Now its tax status is under scrutiny from Florida lawmakers. We'll tell you what's at risk and why Florida taxpayers could end up holding the bag. Plus, shares of Snap are down more than 60% from their all-time high in September. They're on pace for their seventh monthly drop in the past eight. Can earnings after the bell help turn things around? We'll ask our trader in earnings exchange after this. Canva presents unexplained appearances. It was an ordinary workday until... That presentation appeared out of thin air. Also, it's eerily on brand. Wait, did that agenda just write itself? Words appear, making this unexplainable case... Unexplainable? It's Canva's AI tools. I can generate slides and words in seconds. Really? <clears throat> the real mystery is why I'm only learning this now. Canva.com. Designed for work. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration. Our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to The Exchange, everybody. I'm Tyler Matheson. Here's your CNBC News update at this hour. In New York, a handyman has been arrested in the murder of a mother whose body was found in a duffel bag. Police say David Bonola killed Orsolia Gall after the two got into an argument. Bonola allegedly stabbed her more than 50 times while one of Gall's children was upstairs in her home. Gall's body was found on a nearby road in a duffel bag that police say belonged to her son. On the news tonight, the timeline of a murder and what may have led to that brutal stabbing. That's tonight at 7 o'clock Eastern time. And the Supreme Court has ruled Congress can exclude Puerto Ricans from a benefits program available to other citizens. The Supplemental Security Income Program offers payments to older, disabled, and blind Americans. The High Court voted 8 to 1 that excluding Puerto Ricans from the plan did not qualify as discrimination under the Constitution. And Mattel is paying tribute to Britain's Queen Elizabeth on her 96th birthday. The toy company has unveiled a Barbie doll to honor her seventh, there she is, Her Royal Highness Kelly, Queen Elizabeth, Barbie as queen. I, you know, that might be a cool Barbie to have as a girl who never really had them. Yes, that, it's, a, it's a nice Barbie, yes, look at that. <laughs> Tyler, Very I will good. see you soon. See you soon. Tyler Matheson, still ahead everybody, Snap, American Express, and Schlumberger are all on deck with results. We have the action, the story, and the trade on each of these stocks, all in the red today, along with the broader markets. We're back in a moment. Welcome to the Canva guided meditation for stress at work. Impending deadline? Generate Canva presentations in seconds. So fast. Brainstorm got too big? Ooh. Summarize with AI in a click. click, click, click. Rider's block? Release. With Canva Magic Write. Magical. Stress less and save time at canva.com. Designed for work. 
This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Welcome back, everybody. Fed Chair Powell addressing inflation moments ago at the IMF debate on the economy. Here's what he had to say. So let me say one of the great benefits of the IMF meetings is the chance to talk and collaborate. Christine and, and me and uh, all of our colleagues talk about these things. And we find a couple of things. First is that inflation is really a global problem. It's, it's quite everywhere and it's high in most places. But there, there are differences. There are certainly differences. So in the United States, we have very strong growth and we have higher inflation, we have higher core inflation than, than Europe does, for example. We also came into this, Europe has struggled more than we have with, with low inflation, well below target, had a much lower policy rate. So we, we have a different level of underlying inflation. So they're just differences. And of course, we all serve domestic mandates. So in the case of the United States, um, you know, we have had an expectation that, that inflation would peak around this time and would come down over the course of the rest of the year to an extent and then come down further in 2023. These expectations have been disappointed in the past and so now we're really in wanting to see actual progress. There's a, it may be that, that the actual peak was in March, but we don't know that and so we're not gonna count on it. And we're, we're also no longer gonna count on um, help from supply side healing. We're, we're, gonna, we're gonna, if we get that, that'll be great and I think that would be enormously helpful in, in having a, a, a soft landing, but, but uh, we're really going to be raising rates and getting expeditiously to levels that are more neutral and then that are actually tight, tightening policy, if that turns out to be appropriate once we get there. But isn't it going to be hard to control inflation through tightening when a lot of it is coming from the fact that Russia and Ukraine are major exporters of so many commodities that we need? We don't know how long this war is going to go on. We don't know how long China is going to be seeing these rolling shutdowns and therefore more supply crunch. Isn't it going to be harder than normal to get a handle on inflation through your policies? Yeah, we, we can, of course can't affect supply side issues. We really can't affect much food and energy prices either in the near term. So it comes down to what we what we can do is our tools work on demand. But we have a, we have a job to do on demand. And I, I'll, I'll go point to the labor market. There are you know substantially more uh, job openings than there are people who are unemployed. And if you if you if you take total employed people plus job openings, that's demand for labor. If you look at the size of the labor force, there are more than 5 million more demand than there is supply. So we've got a demand supply imbalance in the labor market and elsewhere in the economy. It's, it's clear and that comes from a number of things, including fiscal policy, including what we did in the, in, at the height of the crisis. So there is a demand job to do, but you're right. We, we can't fix supply side problems. Do you need the stock market to be lower to well, impact I, demand? You know, we, I, we wouldn't, I never would point to one particular price or asset or class of assets, but generally the way our policy works is we, we control one overnight rate plus the balance sheet also has some effects. But, and that affects broader financial conditions and that includes asset prices, includes credit availability, risk spreads, all, all kinds of financial conditions. And, and the financial conditions in the end, those are what affect the real economy. So we monitor financial conditions. So there really are two steps there. And, you know, you're, it, one of the many, there, there are many different uh, uh, combinations that are possible of, of financial conditions. And we have seen some tightening from our, uh, you know, from our rate increases, and that's to be expected. So some people have this idea, President Lagarde, that, that, that you guys need to shock the markets to really to start, to start to see more of an impact when it comes to putting pressure on demand and, and on inflation. Is that something you Ascribe to? I, th I think what we need to do is communicate with as much clarity as possible as to communicate uh, as much as possible. I was curious how Lagarde would respond to that question. Sarah just asked her if they need to shock the markets and Lagarde said to uh, she thought it was better to communicate as much as possible. We also just heard from the Fed chair, of course, speaking about inflation. Steve Leisman standing by with some more thoughts and reactions here. Uh, Steve, as we digest that and his comments from earlier about being open to a half point hike next month. 
Yeah, Kelly, and just so viewers know, uh, before we brought, we broke into the, to the conversation, they were talking about the differences between uh, European monetary policy and U.S. monetary policy. And uh, both uh, the uh, head of the ECB, uh, Christine Lagarde, and Powell agreeing that the U.S. has more of an inflation problem right now and so therefore needs to move more quickly. Of course, Lagarde saying that the idea of ending their asset purchases earlier in the third quarter is on the table, as are rate hikes. But she wouldn't bite when Sarah asked if you're ready to raise rates in July. <clears throat> the important thing I heard there from Chair Powell, I think you might have heard it too, Kelly, was him talking about the potential for tight policy. Now, he said uh, the labor market is tight before. He's talked about the idea of tightening policy but uh, relatively new, maybe not the first time he said it, the idea of the Fed going to tight policy. What does that mean in Fed speak? It means going above the neutral rate. So there's the chair kind of openly talking about the idea of not just going to the neutral rate, which is this two and a quarter, two and a half percent range, but perhaps going above that. And that is where we're talking about here, Kelly, where the market's priced. It was priced at, you know, 266 by the end of the year. That would suggest that the market is starting to internalize this idea of the Fed actively moving to restrain the economy. Absolutely. And we're seeing the Nasdaq down about 100 points. Uh, all markets are lower, although not by a huge amount. Steve, thanks for now. Again, we appreciate it. Steve Leisman will continue to monitor that event. Up next, earnings exchange. We've got the action, the story and the trades for Snap, Amex and Schlumberger. Stay right there. Welcome back, everybody. Netflix's huge miss. Tesla's big beat. Earnings are driving the market these days. And we've got the preview on three more names on deck this week. It is time for today's earnings exchange. Let's start with Snap. This one's actually down about 10 percent this week as tech has broadly been under pressure, as we've noticed of late. Of course, the Nasdaq rates. Uh, there's a lot of aspects of that story. Netflix. But the street still bullish on the name with zero sell ratings. Julia Borson has the story on Snap. And Nancy Tangler has our trades today. She's CEO and CI of Laffer Tangler Investments. Welcome to you both. Julia, what are we looking for? Yeah, zero sell ratings and over 75% of analysts have a buy rating on this stock. The key thing here is the company is expected to continue to grow both its revenue and its subscriber base. Analysts are looking for about 330 million, I'm sorry, not subscribers, users, um, daily active users. That would be the addition of 11 million daily active users in the quarter. And the company's revenue is expected to grow 39%. The key thing here is that Snap could be a bellwether for other, other social media and ad-supported companies because it could be an indicator of how well companies such as Snap are navigating these limits to ad targeting uh, with some of those changes to Apple's operating system and other privacy changes. And then also this broader question of how is the ad market right now? Are we seeing the impact of inflation or um, consumer uncertainty really change the way advertisers are spending right now, Kelly? And Nancy, how are you? You know, I don't think of Snap as a, a stock that you'd be necessarily, you know, big owner of. But uh, what's your take on it these days? Yeah, Kelly, we reduced our exposure to the uh, social media platforms about a year ago. And, and in hindsight, that looks like a pretty decent trade. Um, we, we were concerned about the things that we would still be concerned about with Snap. You have an enormous demand pull. Facebook, Snap, and Pin um, both uh, generated more than three times the mid-teens average uh, growth that they saw uh, pre pr prior to the pandemic. So you've got demand pull. And then you've got the Apple IDFA privacy actions. And that has, has uh, caused some decline in the growth of uh, ad revenue. And there are some uh, analysts that believe that Google, Google, Amazon, and Apple will actually generate uh, more ad revenue than all of the social media platforms combined in the coming years. Uh, so I, I think this is a company that maybe needs a model pivot to their, you know, to their strategic plan. Think Meta, hmm. think Netflix. Um, engagement is, is also waning and they are reliant on growth in Europe. And so with the Russia-Ukraine war, I think that's going to weigh a, a customer that's harassed by inflation. Uh, I think if it sells off, it, it may be a, a good three to five year buy, not three to five month. And if it if it rallies on the, the quarter, I, I'd take some off the table. You would take some off the table. Nancy, by the way, not a lot of people bring up Meta as a, you know, a case of, hey, we wish that this company would do what Meta has done over the past six months or so. You, not that you're a big fan of the stock today, yeah. but why do you think that is the right thing for them to do to kind of take, make this moonshot really at what could be the future? 
I, I actually, I, I'm not really applauding it. I'm just saying it was a diversion that got people, you know, to, to look a little different. We, we reduced our exposure. We took Facebook out of our 12 best ideas portfolio a year ago, and we've reduced it where, where we own it in other places. We also did the same with Twitter. We took it out of our portfolios entirely. So I, I, I think that the, there are better places to be in the market that as these companies adjust, it's like turning the Queen Mary if you're making a model adjustment. Netflix has done it a few times. I don't know if Meta is going to be able to do it in the way that they think they are. Absolutely fair point. Julia, quick final word on this. Speaking of model adjustments, I mean, obviously it goes without saying Twitter is in the middle of one potentially right now. Oh, Twitter's absolutely trying to figure out what's next. We have to remember that Twitter's earnings are a week from today. And of course, Twitter is subject to different pressures and different competitive issues than Snap is. But um, we'll have to see how many of these these facts that Snap reports today are, are applicable to the rest of the social media landscape. And of course, we're waiting for next moves from Twitter bo- Twitter's board in terms of how they respond to this latest offer from Elon Musk. Yeah, you have a full plate today, Julia. Over full, I would say. <laughs> uh, we appreciate it. We'll let you go, Julia Borson, as we turn our attention to Amex, whose shares are up 15% this year, and analysts expect revenue to be up 28% from a year ago. Uh, for more on that story, we turn to Kate Rooney. Kate, what are you watching? Hey, Kelly. So Julie just talked about Snap really being a bellwether for Twitter and some of the other social media stocks. Same thing with Amex and the consumer spending side and then the the credit card companies. So Visa and MasterCard are next week. Amex really comes out of the gate here. So analysts are watching. What does this mean for MasterCard? What does this mean for Visa? So that's big. Watch uh, cross-border. That's a big section for Amex and the rebound there. Has that improved since even the the prior quarter. And within that category, uh, the inter-Europe category, what's going on in Europe with the European consumer? I talked to an analyst earlier who said that's a key portion to watch. They've actually done a good job of breaking out uh, what different demographics are doing when it comes to the rebound. Gen Z and millennials have actually been spending more. We'll see if the older generation is bouncing back here and doing a little bit more of the in-person spending. And then uh, interest rates, net interest income um, for Amex is about 20% of revenue. So not the biggest portion, but higher rates tend to help companies like Amex. So any commentary on what a higher rate environment means for Amex and some of the payment companies. And Nancy, I see here, this is your favorite reopening name. Is that right? Yes, because this older generation member has been doing way too much spending. Um, I love that. (laughs) Um, Yeah, listen, the company raised the dividend 20% last quarter, um, and they've given guidance for revenue growth in that same range. Uh, That's a big uh, endorsement from management about future earnings. You can look at the read-through from the J.P. Morgan call, uh, where card purchase volume was up 29%. Credit has been very benign. Delinquencies are down 31 basis points year over year. And I think customers um, are are eager, even with inflation, to get out and spend. I don't think many vacations will be postponed. And I think this is a name where you can can pay attention to how consumers spend through it. But even if they're spending more on gasoline, um, you can pay for that with a platinum card. So I I like this name. It's outperformed the market over the last 20 years, about 1.1% annually. And so you own this. This is one of those stocks you can own for a lifetime. And I think if it sells off, you buy some. And then if it it rallies, you hang on. All right. That's quite an endorsement, Kate. We thank you, Kate Rooney, uh, who will be watching that one tonight. And finally, we turn to energy, the trade that just keeps working with oil still above $100 a barrel. And Schlumberger is the stock to watch up nearly 40 percent this year. Dom Chu, um, I would have to imagine expectations are going to be pretty high for this space. They are. And and we've seen some sell offs with some competitors ball for them. And but to your point, Kelly, the energy sector has been hot in fuego, no doubt about it. Uh, but is it due for that pause with these oil prices seemingly stabilizing around the shorter term level of around 100 to 110 dollars per barrel? So traders and investors will be going into this Schlumberger earnings report tomorrow morning, looking to see if the price action will mimic, if you will, what we saw with other competitors like Halliburton earlier, also Baker Hughes earlier this week other oil services companies that have already reported stronger versus expectations for Halliburton, weaker versus estimates for Baker Hughes. But each of them is facing selling pressure in the wake of those reporting results. Given what's been a nice run over the last couple of years, maybe for the earnings outlook here, it is about sell the news a little bit. So if you look out for right now, roughly 32 cents a share in earnings, $5.9 billion in total revenues here. And like Halliburton and Baker Hughes before, Schlumberger will give us more of a picture on how these oil companies are reacting to these higher prices 
in the face of things like the war between Russia and Ukraine? Are they drilling more? Is there a pickup in activity? Where is it? And of course, what management says about what the outlook is? Is it the expectation that the current bull run turns more? And if so, what's that narrative super cycle going to be like going forward? So that's going to be key. And Nancy, all that said, you'd rather own EOG. Is that right? I would, yeah, Kelly. Uh, so there are headwinds for Schlumberger. Eighty uh, percent of their revenues uh, come outside of the United States, and with and they are very dependent on Russia. But they're also the technology leader, and they're producing. Uh, they're one of the most productive companies uh, in in the energy space. So we've been exposed to more to the upstream because we still think oil has a way to go, and. With Schlumberger cutting their dividend in 2020 and then not increasing it, you can own an EOG uh, that that doesn't have a lot of the regulatory hurdles to get through because they do a lot of their work on private land. But they've also paid three special dividends, one, two, and one dollar in the last year, doubled their dividend effectively, and they're about to pay another $2.50 special dividend. So you you get paid pretty handsomely to hold this stock uh, with the yield and with the capital appreciation. And it so goes to show, yeah, and stock picking still works even in sectors that are working so strongly. We'll leave it there. Nancy, thanks so much. We always appreciate it. Nancy yeah. Tangler, Dom Chu, thank you, sir, and we'll see you soon. And up next, it's DeSantis versus Disney, the Florida governor seeking to end Disney World's special status, and local taxpayers could be left holding a billion-dollar pra- uh, bag, she said, the details after this quick break. Welcome back. Disney is set to lose its special tax status in Florida after Governor Ron DeSantis implored lawmakers to consider ending their decades-old deal. The move comes after Disney put out a statement against the state's so-called don't-say-gay bill late last month. Robert Frank is here with the latest details and what's at stake for both sides. Robert? Well, Kelly, just moments ago, the Florida House clearing that bill that would eliminate Disney's special government district Governor DeSantis expected to sign that within days, saying it's time to take away Disney's, quote, special privileges. But removing the district could actually leave Florida taxpayers with a higher tax bill. The main benefit that Disney gets from this district is regulatory control. It doesn't have to apply to local governments for building, zoning or planning permits. It effectively pays for its own government services. So local taxpayers would have to start paying for those services which could mean higher tax bills. But the big worry is debt. The district has between $1 and $1.7 billion in bond debt. If this district is eliminated, that debt is transferred to local governments, which could total over $1,000 per taxpayer. It's totally unfair to saddle the residents of these two counties uh, with this kind of liability and, and debt. Eventually, the entire state's going to have to pick up this tab. So it affects every taxpayer in the state of Florida. Now, the bondholders could also challenge this in court since the bond terms, those covenants prevent the state of Florida from, quote, altering or impairing the special district. So, Kelly, this thing looks like it's on the way to the governor, but so many financial and investment repercussions that we're just now starting to understand. Yeah, I thought even if it, it is, if, even if he signs it, that uh, Disney itself would have to agree to dissolve that. But uh, in any case, we'll see, uh, we'll follow this process as it unfolds. Robert, thanks. Robert Frank with what is at stake. That does it for The Exchange for now, everybody. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. FedEx.